here tonight that need to be blessed, being blessed of the Lord. And for that, I'm so very thankful. If you're standing nearby a Bible or if they can throw it on the overhead, I'm going tonight to the book of Galatians, chapter number 4. I, I don't mind telling you you've made my job just a little bit easier to preach tonight. At least some of you have made my job easier. And I would read to you tonight from the epistle of the Galatians that says in Galatians chapter number 4 and verse number 15, thank you for being attentive to the house of God. Those of you who were so involved in the worship, thank you. Thank you so much. And uh, I, I, I'm well aware tonight that I could allow this thing to go. I'm well aware I could allow this thing to press on and, and it would be easy to let you just worship. There's some others tonight that need what only the Word can provide for them. And for that cause, I take you to the Word of the Lord, the book of Galatians, chapter number 4. Verse number 15 tells us, where is then the blessedness ye spake of? For I bear you record that if it had been possible, ye would have plucked out your own eyes and have given them to me. Am I therefore become your enemy? Because I tell you the truth. The Apostle Paul speaking to the church the Galatians saying, There was a time that you would have plucked out your eyes and given to me. But now am I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth. Those that have worshipped tonight, thank you. Those that have put your heart in it tonight, thank you. Those that are in the house of the Lord tonight, thank you. Those that will help me preach tonight, I need your help. Should the Lord be gracious enough to help me, I want to express the burden of the Lord by ministering from this subject tonight. Victims of an unexpected enemy. Victims of an unexpected enemy. Everybody say victims of an unexpected enemy. I'm going to talk to you tonight about an unexpected enemy. God bless you. You may be seated. I'm, I'm going to speak tonight about something that I try to avoid, but something that every person alive has the potential to acquire. What I want to preach about today is the one thing that I strive to not have, but something that every living person has the ability to find. I am by nature a very loyal and a very loving person, and I simply don't want enemies in my life. I've never filled out an application requesting the honor of being somebody's enemy. I've never called a newspaper in my life and requested a, a, a want ad that said, wanted one enemy to direct vile actions towards an overweight preacher. I've never done that. Again, I can just tell you, I just don't want enemies. I cannot honestly tell you that I have ever intentionally done anything that I know of to anybody to intentionally make them my enemy. I just don't want enemies. And yet honesty demands that I confess to you that I know what it's like to have an enemy in this life. 
Sometimes people can become enemies because of a mistake that turns them against you. Some people will become your enemy because of a conflict that they perceive uh, was intentional and they become vile against you. Sometimes people become enemies because of an unfortunate accident that was ill-perceived as being an intentional infraction against their own personal uh, life and therefore they become your, your enemy. On and on I could go listing the ways that a person might acquire an enemy, but I'm afraid the list would be too long and too sad to really reiterate in our hearing tonight. But it's an unfortunate fact that sometimes you don't have to do anything to find yourself an enemy. All you've got to do is find somebody whose personality does not gel with yours, somebody whose attitude becomes adverse to yours, and and suddenly, if they just don't like the way you act, they just don't like the way you look, they just don't like the way you do things, suddenly you become the enemy. I'll never forget when I first started preaching, Brother Johnson prepared me for everything I thought. I went and preached a rally at a place. They asked me to come preach a youth rally, and when it was over with, I found out that that pastor didn't like me, and he sent word back that he didn't care for Brother White. Because when I picked up my guitar and I began to play and sing, I was trying to act like Elvis Presley. If I could only move like Elvis Presley, I'd be happy. If I move like that, I'm going to injure something permanently. Somebody called me last night wanting me to come preach for him, and they were having a conference at their particular church, and they asked me to come preach for him, and I found the date was open. I said, I can do that, I suspect. And and they said, Brother White, I don't know anybody that doesn't respect you. I said, I've never met anybody, as a matter of fact, that doesn't speak good of you. And I, I would have found a little consolation in that, save the fact that Jesus himself said, Woe unto you, and all men shall speak well of you, for thus did they do to the prophets, and then they killed them. So I, I don't get real excited when they start telling me everybody's talking good about you, because I realize... Sometimes it just don't take a lot to make you somebody's enemy. And again, just living life and being you is enough to make some people your enemy. So great was the potential for humanity to find enemies that the Bible uses the word enemy, not enemies or the other variations of it, but just simply the word enemy 106 times describing to us where to look for our enemies, what some individuals become your enemies for, and when to fear our enemies, and it even tells us how to treat our enemies. And it's interesting to note that in the biblical sense, the word enemy comes from a primitive root word meaning to hate, to become adversarial, in a position to damage another. Remember that last definition because it's going to come into play later on in this message. But then again, I don't think that I have to define to you what an enemy is because I, I believe that's probably everybody in the house at one time or another. Whether it was on a playground and somebody wanted your lunch money or whether it was on a job and somebody resented the fact that you got the position and they didn't or whether it was somebody in your family that was upset because you got the boyfriend and they didn't. I want you to understand, I, I don't even think that 
I have to explain to those of you that sit before me tonight what it means to have somebody that sets themselves against you to be your enemy. But what maybe we do need to take a closer look at tonight is the fact that our enemies usually come from three key categories. If you'll allow me tonight, I want to talk for just a minute about those three key categories that enemies come to us in. The first one is what's commonly called a natural enemy. These are those elements in life whose nature leaves them obvious and expected enemies. It's just nature itself that tells the gazelle that the lion is by nature. A hunter that seeks to devour the gazelle. This is the easiest enemy for you and I to be able to deal with, that one that we know who they are. and We know what they are and we know that they want to do things adversarial to us. And, and you know what to expect from those things whose nature is to harm you for years. We, uh, the world as we knew it was in constant turmoil because of what was called the Cold War. Our freedoms were so opposed to the communist regimes of the world that those nations that espoused communism were natural enemies of diplomacy. And we knew what to expect from them because we knew that they hated our capitalism. We knew that they hated our democracy. We knew that they hated our way of life and they wanted to destroy it. Can somebody say amen? I'm talking about natural enemies tonight. The Bible tells us that Satan is a natural enemy of the church because he stands against everything that we stand for in the kingdom of God. He hates holiness and he hates righteousness and he hates worship and he hates truth and he hates sacrifices to God. The Bible goes so far as to tell us right up front what to expect out of hell's forces when it tells us in the old familiar scripture in John 10 and 10 the thief cometh not but to kill and to steal and to destroy. Satan by his very nature is a natural enemy, a seen and an expected predator that's in a position to harm us if, as Bishop said this morning, we don't keep our souls guarded. If we don't keep our souls guarded, the adversary will do its best to destroy us. That's just the nature of the beast that wants to devour the church. Can somebody say amen? The next category of enemy is what we'll call an unseen enemy. By that, we know what they are and we know that they're in a potential to harm us. They're in a position, excuse me, to harm us. But there's something that we generally don't encounter every day. For instance, I've made no secret about it to this church. I hate snakes. I don't like snakes a little bit. They're slimy. Cold, nasty, vile, ugly creatures. I don't understand people of demented mental capacity that plays with snakes. Silly people. Filthy people. I don't understand that. <laughs> I don't know what kind of thrill you could possibly get out of playing with a slimy, nasty. They said, Brother White, all snakes won't kill you. No, 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 you got that wrong. 
I can't tell one from the other. I don't know if they're poisonous, they're not poisonous. I don't know which ones will kill you and which ones won't kill you. But I promise you this much, if one ever bites Big Daddy White, it don't have to kill me with poison. I'll have a heart attack and die. The thing that makes me so cautious about snakes is not the fact that I know that they can harm you. It's that they're quiet. You don't see them. I honestly think I'd rather deal with a rattlesnake than I would another snake. Because at least it lets me know I'm fixing to kill you. I don't want anything to do with snakes. I know they have the ability to harm me. But the thing that makes me so cautious is they're not waving a flag to get my attention. The thing that makes me so cautious... If they don't have a, a flashing light on their head that says, I'm going to strike you. I'm trying to tell you I'd feel better if they did let us know where they were so we could protect ourselves. I'll tell you how much I hate snakes. We were out in the lease the other day, and, and I had my, my pistol with me. I've just learned you don't want to go out on that lease without a pistol. And, and, and we were going to set up Benjamin's deer stand. And, and I think Brother G.L. Holder was there with us. And, and we put it all together and we put the legs on and we was getting ready to push it up. And Benjamin stepped on a log and started to step over and I saw him start flailing around and, and fall backwards saying, give it to me, Dad, give it to me, give it to me, give it to me. And I looked at him and I didn't know what he was talking about. And he finally just said, give it to me, gun, 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 gun. So I handed him the gun and I knew if the snake was near me, shoot it or shoot me, but don't leave us alone. And, and he grabbed the gun. God love his heart, it shook him up so bad. I had snake shot in it. He had to shoot that ugly thing four times to kill it. And then I was so shook up about it, I said, get it out of here. And that ignorant outfit went and hung it in a tree beside me. So that every time we get ready to pick up that old... Uh, deer stand. I'd look back and I don't think it'd be wiggling. And I, <coughs> I'll just be honest with you, I put more shells in my gun in case it wiggled too much. Because I ain't going to fool with no snakes. I don't like snakes! Because they're an unseen enemy. They blend in too well with the grass and they blend in too well with the leaves and <coughs> they crawl up under all of that brush and you don't see it until you're already there. The Bible speaks often throughout its pages about the snares. and It talks about the snare of the fowler. I might remind you tonight that it likens them to certain trials that people become trapped in. And we all readily understand that a snare is something whose very purpose is to capture and to destroy you. But it's hard to detect a snare because by its nature it is an unseen predator. It's there under the surface waiting for you to make a mistake. I'm talking about unseen enemies right now. When the young people begin to make fun of the prophet, the Bible tells us that they were unaware of a she-bear that was just in the midst over in the wooded area and it came out and the Bible said it devoured them that day. It was there all along, but it was an unseen predator. It was an unseen enemy. And finally, there is the third class of enemies that we'll speak about tonight called the unexpected enemy. 
By that I'm talking about those things that you may be around every day and not realize that those things have become your enemies. If you'd allow me today, I've come to this pulpit to tell you I am persuaded that this is the most dangerous enemy of all. It's dangerous because natural enemies you can prepare for. It's dangerous because unseen enemies you can be mindful of. But it's the unexpected enemies that find us open and vulnerable and because of that that can do the most damage in your world. You need to understand tonight that it's the unexpected enemy that can do the most damage because you are unprotected and you are unprepared to deal with that. When you study the Bible, you find that it was another prophet that facilitated the destruction of a young prophet when the elder convinced the younger to turn aside and eat a meal with him even though God had spoke to the younger prophet and said, don't you turn to the left or the right, but you do what you got to do and you come in. It was a quick and thorough destruction because nobody expected the old prophet to speak falsely. He was destroyed quickly and easily because of an unexpected enemy. We know the story of Amnon raping his sister Tamar. But it's only when you read deeper into the story of Amnon's advisor, who was a man named Jonadab, that you read scriptures that tell us that Amnon was working with a man named Absalom, who was the other son of David. And Jonadab was working, even though he was supposed to be Amnon's best friend. He was working with the enemy. He was an unexpected enemy that put himself in his life life, Amnon was slaughtered and left lying in his own blood, right at the king's table because of an unexpected enemy. There was no defense. There was no fight put up. There was no recourse. It happened before he knew it was coming because he was the the victim of an unexpected enemy. And it's important to realize tonight that if you're not careful, there's not anybody that can do more damage to your world than an unexpected enemy because you're open and you're vulnerable and you're comfortable in their midst. Can I tell you that it was in Zechariah's passionate prophecy about the suffering Savior we hear the question of the ages being asked to this one hanging on the cross uh, when they looked at him and said where are these wounds from in your hands Uh, and the Bible said that Jesus would answer and say I'll tell you where they came from I was wounded in the house of my friends Uh, it didn't happen in Satan's hand Uh, we expected that it was not some adversary that I was looking around every spiritual log to see I was wounded in the house of my friends. It happened in that place that I didn't expect it to happen. It transpired in the arena that I didn't foresee coming my way. It was a savage encounter in a place where I wasn't wearing a sword and I wasn't wearing a shield. It's something that happened when I wasn't ready for it. Can I tell you today to follow in the vein of my bishop this morning? I've got to tell you tonight, I've come to deal with the 
souls of men and women, real souls, living souls, some of who desperately need a touch of God in this house tonight. And it's fallen my lot to tell you that sometimes the greatest enemy of your soul is the one that you didn't expect to hurt you. Sometimes the greatest enemy of your soul is that one that you didn't see trying to hurt you. You didn't see it trying to damage you. It's the unseen enemy. The unexpected enemy. I don't mind telling you that your soul has a natural enemy. Because Satan has set himself to destroy you. Your soul has an unseen enemy. Because nobody knows what tomorrow holds and the trials that may try to shake your faith in God and destroy your soul. But I'm not here to preach about the, the natural enemies of your soul. I'm not here tonight to preach about the unseen enemies of your soul. My task in this pulpit tonight is to tell this congregation that I fear some of you are becoming the victims of an unexpected enemy. And it's going to cost you your very soul. I want to know if this church is going to help me preach a little while around here tonight. You need to be aware that there's always the potential to have those unexpected enemies, even in the church of the living God. And I'm talking about those things that you're around, and you're hoping, and you're free to those things, to let them touch your world. But I've come tonight to charge this congregation to understand that if your relationship with certain things go wrong, if your relationship with certain things go awry, those things can turn on you. And the things that were designed to be good to you can actually do more damage to your soul than they can do good. I want to know if somebody hears this preacher preach tonight. I've come to preach to you that there are those that sit in this church tonight who are the victims of an unexpected enemy. You're being victimized by things that were never designed to harm you, that were never designed to hurt you, but you're the victims. An unexpected enemy. What are those things that we've learned to love and trust that has the ability to damage us if we're not careful? My question to you tonight is this. What are those things that are available to us that have the potential to do just as much damage as they can good? If you'll allow me tonight, if you'll allow my pastor's heart to follow what I feel in my spirit, I've come tonight to tell you that truth can become an unexpected enemy in your world. Brother White, I don't, that don't make sense. I love truth, Brother White. Truth is precious. While the most valuable knowledge you have in this life is truth, you need to be aware that this precious truth we hold near and dear to us tonight has the ability to become one of our greatest enemies if we don't value it and we don't treat it the way that God intended truth to be treated. I understand some of you aren't with me right now because you don't know where I'm going. So let me just make it plain. It was truth that brought you out of darkness into this marvelous light. It was truth that separated you from the old life into this precious Pentecostal way. I've come today to tell you that if there's one ounce of righteousness in you, there should be a gratitude in your heart that you can be baptized in Jesus' name. There should be a gratitude in your heart that 
that you speak in tongues as the Spirit gives you. I'm telling you, if there's any righteousness in you, there ought to be a gratitude that you know the fullness of the Godhead was in Christ Jesus mightily. Thank God for baptism in His name. Thank God neither is there salvation in any other name, for there is none other name under heaven among men whereby we must. Thank God we understand the evidence of receiving the Holy Ghost. Should you speak in tongues? Thank God we're not doing obeisance to a faithful father and a Jehovah Junior and a spooky spirit. Thank God that we understand He was God in the beginning. And the same God is Alpha and Omega. He's the same God. That's the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valley. He's the Lamb of God and the Lion. Thank God that we understand. He's the Father. He's the Son. He is the Holy Ghost. Oh, some of you ain't thankful for it. I can tell by your reaction you're not grateful. You just found you a heavenly fire escape. But I want you to know, I love this truth. I love this truth. I love this message. I love it. How? How? How could truth ever become an enemy to us? Let me tell you how tonight. The day that our revelation of truth causes us to turn our nose up at others that don't have this truth is the day that your truth has become an unexpected enemy to you. Now, I'm going to preach my heart a little while tonight and somebody in here needs to help me. Just because you have a revelation of truth doesn't mean that there's not other people out there in other denominal churches that don't love God just like you do. Oh, let me preach just a little bit here tonight. The fact is, there's a lot of people out there in other churches that love God just as much as you do. They just worship. They know not what. And it's our job to tell them who He is. And it's our job to tell Him how to be baptized. And it's our job to tell... It's our job to tell them that they can receive the Holy Ghost and talk in tongues. How can truth become our enemy? I'll tell you how. I've lived in Pentecost long enough now. I've seen this precious truth become a spiritual arrogance in the hearts of some that would allow them to sit back. And I've heard the derogatory tone in their voice. And if you're here tonight of that persuasion and you hear by way of tape ministry, you just forgive me, but you hear me out. I've heard too many Pentecostals talk about them old Baptists and them old Methodists and them old Jehovah Witness and them old Church of Christ as though they didn't really love God at all. I've got to tell you just in case you didn't know it, there's a reason they're still sitting in that dead church. There's a reason they're sitting there dead and powerless. Oh, you're not listening to me right now. I'm of a persuasion that some of them love God more than you do. And I'll tell you why. They love Him so much. They'll endure a dead church just so they can keep preaching for Him. They crave His touch so much. They sit in a powerless church hoping that someday I'll feel His touch. They want God so bad. They linger in the darkness of false doctrine hoping they can stumble across one glimmer of light. 
There's a reason why they're so cognizant of their soul that they're setting today counting beads until somebody cares enough to show them the way. Say what you want to say. I want to tell you sometimes the things that should be our best are the things that are our greatest enemy. I said today, listen to Brother Stacy preach his grandmother's funeral a few days ago. And I watched that man get up there and begin to preach his own grandmother's funeral in that Catholic church. And I watched them precious souls get on their knees and count those beads. And I watched them go through all their little rituals. You say, Brother White, they're often some ugly false. They may be often false doctrine. But I want to tell you, some of them are only there because you're arrogant. And because you don't care enough to tell them that they're going to be lost. You don't care enough to tell them you don't have to do that. There's a better way. I want to tell you. Don't you ever look down your nose at them like you deserve this message. Like your goodness merited the revelation of baptism in His name. Don't you look down your nose at them like your superiority deserved to know what talking in tongues is all about. Can I set the record straight tonight by telling you that in this church it's full of Baptists and Methodists and Assembly of God. It's full of Catholic Sister Peggy. It's full of Church of Christ. Bobby Paul said it best when he said, and such were some of you, but you're sanctified. You're justified in the name of the Lord Jesus. And by I've come to tell you, in this house there's Baptists, and there's Methodists, and there's Church of Christ. But let me tell you something else. They repented of their sins. They've been down in Jesus' name. They've talked in tongues. And they know the Father is Jesus. The Son is Jesus. The Holy Ghost. All they're waiting on is somebody to love them enough, to care enough, to reach them with this precious apostolic truth. Sit down just a minute. How dare anybody think that you deserved to hear what others are still hungering for? Oh, I got. I just got to say it tonight. You forgive me if I'm getting out of line. But this is my pulpit, and I think I know what I can say tonight. If you're here from a denominal world, if you're here in a visitor, and there's ever been a Pentecostal treat you inferior, I want to apologize to you. I think you love God, and I think you have a heart to serve Him. You just need to know a little bit more. I'm not going to take away what you got. I want you to keep loving Him. I want you to stay faithful. I want you to stay in the church. But let me tell you that you've got to have your sins washed away in Jesus' name baptism. You've got to have the Holy Ghost speaking in tongues. Bless God. Them old Methodists and them old Baptists. And you let me tell you something, sweet sanctified sister. I would remind you that when Jesus took the loaves and the fishes and He broke it and handed it to the apostles to feed the 5,000, the miracle was not found in Jesus breaking the bread and handing it to the apostles. The miracle was found when He handed it to the apostles. The more they gave, the more they got. And the more they gave, the more they got. 
I'm going to tell you when Jesus is going to feed the 5,000 in Silsby. When we realize God's done broke the bread and He gave it to us. And the more we give, the more we'll get. And the more we witness, the more we'll get. And the more we pray, the more... I've come to tell you He didn't put the bread in your hand Just stick it in your basket And say I deserve it You gotta give it You gotta give it You gotta give it Jesus didn't give you this message To sit back and brag About knowing three one God scriptures He gave it to you to give to them And the day you feel like you deserved What they've never had a chance to feel is the day that truth has damaged you more than it's helped you. Let me go on right now. Preach something else to you. You may brand me a heretic after this. I'm not sure. I don't expect to be popular right now, but I do expect to be honest. I've got to tell you without holiness... You're never going to see God. I've got to tell you to be like God. You've got to be holy for He is holy. I've got to tell you your holiness is a customized expression of God to the people that walk around you in your world. But I also need to tell you that holiness can become an unexpected enemy to your soul. Holiness can damage you more than it can help you if you ever get a distorted relationship with holiness. Oh, I wish I had your hearts right now. I'm going to preach to you that the day you think the length of your skirt or your uncut hair means that you're right with God is the day that your holiness has become your enemy. You didn't hear what I said. I said the day you think the length of your skirt means you're saved. And the day you think your uncut hair means you're ready for heaven is the day that you've been damaged by something God intended for good. I've seen people who live it outwardly. Jimmy, if you can help me, help me. I've seen people live it outwardly to the letter of the law that are a million miles away from God. I've come here to tell this congregation tonight that being right with God is more than not cutting your hair. And being right with God is more than wearing long skirts. Do you believe in uncut hair as sure as I'm standing here? Do you believe we ought to be modest as sure as I'm standing here? But I'm going to tell you that holiness on the outside is supposed to be an expression of a life you're living on the inside. And until you've got holiness on the outside and the inside, you're not saved at all. It's just a false sense of security. Oh, I don't know if you really want me to preach or not, but I'm going to tell you some of the most gossiping lips I know aren't covered with lipstick. And some of the most bitter hearts I know are covered up with godly necklines. And some of the most godly hair I've ever seen has never been shouted down because of the pride in their stinking spirit. I wish some of you would shout your hair down. I wish some of you would dance. I wish some of you would shove the pride out of the way. You're safe. Your hair's not messed up. You're all right. Y'all almost got Pentecostal there. But you kept your, your white rain in check. 
you kept your head. I want to tell you something. Some of the godliest people I've ever known are eat up with a stinking spirit of pride. And they're afraid what they'll look like if they shout. They're afraid what they'll look like if they... T- I wish some of you would pump your pride right now. I wish some of you would dance right now. Can I preach just a little while right now? What good does it do to look Pentecostal on the outside of your home when you're pouring the filth of a television on the inside of your home? And I'll go one farther. Why is it if I don't preach on it ever six months you think I don't believe it anymore? It doesn't do any good if you look right on the outside, but you're wrong on the inside. What good does it do to have a clean-shaven face before men when there's more filthy, vulgar cuss words that are said through those same lips when you're angry? What does... (laughs) Is this all right? What good does it do to wear a Pentecostal skirt in public if you're quick to take it off as soon as you find a man willing to fornicate? Is that all right? Let me give you another one just as bad. What good does it do to obey the standards inside the church when as soon as you walk out, everybody in the church sees your stones and your jewelry on the outside of the church? Hey, I'll say something else. It goes beyond just being on my platform. It's more than the standard of this church. If you're doing it outside the building, you're a hypocrite. If you're living it out there, you're a hypocrite. If you're living it out there, you're not right with God. I don't care if you got sleeves down to your wrist and skirts down to your ankles. I've come to tell you, when you're living one thing in the house and another thing out there, you're living in sin. And holiness has become your enemy. Because you think my skirt's right and my hair's right and my sleeve. Hey, you can all be right and you can be full of dead men's bones. I got news for you. I got a little old spirit whispering to me out there. Okay, sit down. I want to show you something. A little old spirit out there whispering to me. I hear you. You're whispering. He's just preaching like that to show off for his pastor. Two things you need to understand, sweetheart. This man knows what I preach like. He's the one that trained me. And the second thing you need to know, I preach like this all the time. I want to know, is there anybody in here that still loves preaching? Is there anybody in here that still loves holiness? I've come to tell you it's more than the rules of holiness that makes you right with God. You're not right with God until you have the spirit of holiness that goes along with your rules. It's the spirit of holiness. 
that takes a stand in your soul and says, I'm not going to live one thing in the church and another thing in the world. Where in the name of God did this stupidity come from? I'm not on the platform so I can do it. I'm not on the platform so I can... I'll tell you what the Bible said. It said to obey them that have the rule over you, knowing that they've got to give an account for your soul. You want to live one thing in here and one other out there? The problem is you're sinning the sin of disobedience. And you're going to be lost and go to a devil's hell. And I'm going to have to stand before God and say, I preached it. I said it. I told them. But you've got to live it. Spirit of holiness that tells you, I'm not going to talk one way before God and talk another way to a saint. I've got some of the stinking gossip. You let one person make a mistake. Half the church will know it if you're not careful. You know what's beautiful about it? The story never comes out right. It never comes out the same. That's why I come to the pulpit and I tell you when things are going on. I tell you when somebody's getting ready to move because I don't need no long tongue running around saying, well, I heard this and I heard they're just doing that. I'll tell you what we're doing. We're living for God around here. And we're growing around here. And if you'd quit talking a little bit, you could get right in the big middle of it. If you'd quit finding fault, you'd get in the big middle of it. If you'd quit pointing a finger, you could lift up a holy hand. You need to get in the middle of it. Somebody has to hear this preacher tonight and realize the holiness is a gift from God. But when outward holiness covers up inward iniquity, your holiness has become an unexpected enemy to you. Can I move on tonight? Please be seated. I'm going to preach to you next that good church can become an unexpected enemy that will destroy your soul. I'll be the first one to tell you I'm thankful for a great church. I'm thankful for the great services we have. I want to go on the record tonight to tell this congregation, I'm glad we're not stuck back. I don't mean to shoot in the wrong direction here. But I'm glad we're not stuck back singing Lanny Wolf songs. Stuck in the 1960s and the 1970s. I'm glad we're not stuck with a flat top guitar and an accordion. Thank God for what we got. But I've... I've seen congregations that would give anything for the talent you have in this church. I've seen congregations that would give anything for the singing that goes on in this church. I've seen churches that would give anything for the structure of the services we've had here. Some of our mediocre services would be heaven on earth to some of them. But what I've come to preach to you tonight is that good church can become one of the most damning unexpected enemies that there is. Just because you have good singing and you have good preaching and you have good good church becomes an enemy when you think God's there just because the talent's there good church becomes your adversary when you think just because I'm here don't you ever forget sweetheart God's not here because we got a new keyboard and God's not here because we got choir mics and God's not here because we got a good drummer. If God's going to be in the house, it's because somebody made a heart connection between... I'll tell you the ones that good churches become an enemy to. Those that don't go to the prayer room anymore. 
because I don't need to go to the prayer room and make a heart connection. Let me just go into church. And Brother Darren's going to shout us a little bit. And the drums are going to pump it up a little bit. I want to tell you, you can have music running out your ears. But if you don't make a connection with God, it's really not church at all. I've sat disgusted in churches with in camp meetings. I've seen flawless perfection and harmonious melodies from the hearts of Pentecostal singers that didn't have one touch of anointing on it because there were empty words without a heart connection. I've seen dynamic expressions of musical talent that wowed the audience but didn't come close to changing the atmosphere because it was a relationship with a keyboard and it failed to be a relationship with God. I was never so disgusted in my whole life. I probably won't be asked back to that camp. But that's fine. I went and preached to camp this last summer. We had a Bible college come in to sing that night. Just before I got up to preach, whoo, praise God. They got up to sing. They was all flirting with girls and passing out phone numbers all through the pre-service till it come time for them to sing. And then they got up there and they talked in tongues and they hooped and they hollered and they danced their little dance. And they sung and they rep- reprimanded everybody in the building for not shouting. They scolded everybody for not dancing. And as soon as everybody got to worshiping a little bit and they got to talking in tongues a little bit and they got their little Bible school shuffled down a little bit, they turned around and made their way back up to the, to the pew that they had been sitting on. And the whole time I preached, they sat over there laughing and they sat over there passing all of their little notes and they sat over there laughing and talking to the girls and the guys and finally I had all I could take of that I'm going to tell you church I don't care how much talent we get in abundant life we don't need professional musicians and we don't need professional singers it's not music that breaks the yoke and it's not singing that breaks the yoke it is the anointing that breaks the yoke and if you're not anointed shut up and sit down if you're not anointed hush your mouth if you're not anointed get out of the way because somebody has got to change the world and it'll be changed with anointing I took about all of that but I could stand finally I stopped preaching places going stone wild people are dancing and hooping and hollering and I looked over them little and I'm not against Bible school so you just understand the way I'm saying it I looked over them little Bible school playboys and them little prima donna princesses as they sit over there batting their eyelashes at each other and all of a sudden I stopped everything and I said everybody else is shouting and everybody else is dancing I want that Bible school to stand to your feet right now they were sitting over here and said I want that and I called them by name I want you to stand up and worship now you wanted us to worship with you you're not going to pass notes while I'm preaching you wanted us to dance with you you're not going to sit there and wink at each other well I, I want to see you get up and worship and when they didn't I ran to the edge of the platform and said hey everybody if they don't worship you don't have to worship next time and suddenly they start getting up one by one hey church you better listen to me we don't need that good church will curse you you need to have anointing you need to have anointing (laughs) 
I've watched in this own sanctuary some of you too many times sit stoic and unmoved when the choir was singing their heart out. Brother White, how did you see? Let me tell you how. I stand on the front row and every now and then I do this. Because I want to know who is and I want to know who isn't. Because i got to tell you something. If you can't worship with anointed singing, it's just a show to you, honey. If you can't worship with an anointed choir, it's just professional to you. I've got to tell you today, I've seen too many services where they didn't respond until the appropriate time and the appropriate moment. So it looked like you were saved. I want... It makes me... Somebody said it the other day and I don't even remember who it is. But it makes me sick to go to a church and somebody sing a special. And then when they're done, everybody claps their hands. Honey, this ain't the opera. This is the anointing. This is not the symphony. This is the spiritual thing they're hungering for. Trying to preach to you today. I'll tell you what the problem is. Some of you that never respond to anything, or oh, brother, what well, I'm tired. I know. So is the rest of the church. The difference is they just love God a little more than you do. What's the problem, brother? What well, I'll tell you what it is. You become a victim of a good church. And I've got to preach to this church tonight and tell you that when good singing produces mechanical worship, you're the victim of an unexpected enemy. When an off-key organ makes you wonder where God went, you're the victim of an unexpected enemy. When the forgotten words of a song make you wonder when God walked out, you're the victim of an unexpected enemy. When you forget the words of a song, but you don't know the Spirit is trying to do something in your heart, you are the victim of an unexpected enemy. Oh, hear me tonight, church. You've got to put your heart in it. You've got to put your soul in it. I want to tell you when good church becomes dangerous to us. Good church becomes an unexpected enemy. When you think observation has the same spiritual rewards as involvement. I'm here. Bless me. I'm here. Somebody shout up a good dance and I'll feel a little quiver. I want to tell you something. You never get out of a church expe- uh, spectating what you do get out of a church when you're participating. i tell you what I wish. The Bible said when the Holy Ghost fell, they were all in one place. And they were all in one accord. I want to tell you what the moral of that is. I don't think they were all swaying the same way like a choir. I don't think they were all saying the same words like a like a chorus. I'll tell you what it was. They all wanted the same thing. And they all desired the same. And that one may be dancing, but I'm going to run the aisles. And I'm going to run the aisles, but they may roll on the floor. But one thing is for sure. We all want the same thing. We want to move of God. Oh, it got a little bit tight in here. <laughs> but then again, I thought it was. That's why I preached tonight. I want to tell you, nothing takes the place of getting involved for yourself in the service. And if God's going to meet with us tonight in this service, it's not going to be because we had good singing. And it's not going to be because we had good music. If God meets with us tonight, Brother Potts, in this service, 
He's going to meet with us because somebody pushed your heart into His presence. Someday, oh, brother, what? God's here because I feel the music. Honey, you can hear good music in a honky-tonk. You better push your soul into His presence. God's here tonight, Brother White. I saw people dancing. You can go to a disco and find them dancing. You better push your soul into His presence. I want to tell you, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. And you've got to get into His presence. You don't need mechanical worship. You need passionate worship. You don't need a relationship with the songs. You need a relationship with God. Two things. Some of you know the words to every song and have never touched the spirit of the song. Then I got another group in here that complains because they sing new songs and you don't know the words. If you don't know the words, just reach for the spirit. I wonder how long you're going to sit there nervous. <laughs> Let me just preach a little bit, okay? You don't need choreographed response. You need an instant response to the Spirit. I want to tell you something, darling. I can sit here all night long and say, let's all lift our hands. Let's all shout. Let's all dance. Let's all say hallelujah. I can do that all night long. You don't need that. Honey, if you're going to do that, you can just go join any dance troupe in the world. And they'll tell you how to be Lord of the dance. You can get out there and tap your little toes. And you can say, I want to tell you how to be apostolic. Be instant in season and out of season. I'll tell you how to be apostolic. Get in it with your heart. If any man's going to be my disciple, you've got to love him with your heart, mind, soul, strength. Give it all you've got. We'll have church. I want to. I, I'm just. I'm just going to be real open tonight. I ain't no hurry about nothing. I'm so thankful we got Darren here. He could be out there in a lot of nightclubs, probably. He could be out there running around with a bunch of different singing groups. He could be the next big contemporary thing. But you know what? I'm glad. I'm glad he's out here running our aisles and pushing our worship and helping us find the presence of God. But while I'm talking about it, let me say it from the heart. You shouldn't make this boy chase after you to say, what can I say to get them out of the pew? What can I sing to get them? You ought to be chasing God, saying, show us the way, Darren. Show us how to get there. Oh, I wish somebody do it right now. You look like a sinner sitting there. You ought to do it right now. And now your spirit's right where I want it. Right where I want it. Before I quit, let me deal with something else you need to understand tonight. Preaching can become an unexpected enemy to your soul. Please be seated. I'll be the first to tell you, you'll never amount to anything without real, passionate, Pentecostal preaching. Everything I am today is because I love preaching. Everything I am today, Sister Hall, is because I submitted myself to preaching. Everything I am today is because I sought God through preaching. 
Everything I am today is because I gave myself to heartfelt preaching. How much do you love preaching, Brother Watt? I'll tell you how much I love preaching. When I was a saint in the church in Crothersville, Indiana, I'd go through preaching tapes every day that there wasn't church because there would not be one day go by that I didn't hear preaching. During my travel, eight years of evangelizing, everywhere I'd go, I'd get cassette tapes. I've got over 4,000 cassette tapes in my house right now in a special built-in closet that I put in the back office of my house. See, because every day that I live, I'm going to listen to preaching. Somebody asked me, Brother White, who did you pattern yourself after? Oh, I didn't pattern myself after anybody. I like listening to black preaching and white preaching. I like listening to teaching and I love listening to conviction. I like listening to the old and I like listening to... One thing I know, I love preaching! But what happens when you learn to live in the parameters of a preacher's message instead of having a walk with God all of your own? I've seen people that lived on the jagged edge of the church that felt absolutely and totally comfortable there until a pastor had to reach out with another sermon and reach out with another illustration until a pastor had to get a few gimmicks and the pastor had to get a few gizmos to get everybody's attention. I've come to tell you, preaching becomes an unexpected enemy when you force preacher to drive you back to where you should have been walking on your own. I'm going to say it again. Preaching becomes your enemy when you force a preacher to drive you back where you should have been walking all along. It was Paul that spoke to the Galatian church. And he said, I'm confused about your walk with God. He said, when you knew not God, you consistently gave yourself to idols. There was no price you wouldn't pay, nothing you wouldn't give, no sacrifice you wouldn't make for your idols. But then he said, God found you one day. And when God found you, He brought you into the church. And now you are in a Galatian church that knows the truth, that has the power of anointing in your midst. But he said, what I found that confuses me, I found that you don't serve God as much as you served your idols. And evidently, his preaching didn't rest well with the Galatian church. In fact, the Bible tells us that when he said that, Paul has to go back later when he's preaching in the very same chapter and say, what's going on? I don't understand. What's wrong? I had to preach strong to you to get you back to the place you should have been with God all along. But now you act like I've mistreated you. You know what Paul said, Brother Rusty? He said, when I first, first preached hard to your soul, you acted like I was an angel from heaven. You wouldn't have accepted it anymore if it had been an angel with words flowing out of its mouth, saying, Thus saith the word of the Lord. Paul said, in fact, you would have plucked out your own eyes and gave to me because you loved my ministry so much. If you thought it was going to keep you saved, you would have given anything. You would have sacrificed it. You would have given your eyes for me. But then Paul says, now something's different. Now it's not like it used to be. Now that tenderness isn't there anymore. Now, 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 Paul has to tell them, am I therefore become your enemy? Because I preached truth to you. Why was my preaching made an enemy? Why has my preaching made me the adversary? 
Why wouldn't you crave it? I'm going to ask this congregation tonight the same question that Paul was asking the Galatian church. Why wouldn't you crave preaching like the day you came into the church? Why didn't you crave? I remember a day when some of you, if I'd preached like I was preaching tonight, you'd have been on this platform beating this pulpit. You'd have been throwing neckties all over this building. If I'd have preached like I was preaching tonight a few years ago to some of you, you'd have been up on your knees here in front of this altar beating the altar with you. Where did that go to? I'll tell you where. Some of you learned to stand out on the fragile edge of the church. And I got a preacher. I'm some spiritual cowboy that's got to find another sermon to lasso you in and drag you back to the altar. But you know why you can't stay there? It's not in your heart. So you go back out again. And I'm the bad guy for preaching you. And you go back out again. And I'm the bad guy for preaching you back in. Am I become your enemy? Because I preach truth. Some of you folks are not real happy here right now. Not many, but a few. And reality is, three, four years ago, you would have died for this kind of preaching. Ten years ago, some of you would have crawled around this church on broken glass to have this kind of preaching. Back when they told me my voice was gone and I wouldn't preach another five years and may never preach again, some of you would have given anything to hear pastor preach. I've come to preach to this congregation. Now, now, you used to believe that every word was from God straight to your heart. But now you just think I don't have anything better to do than to shoot at your personal sins. Now you think I'm just attacking you to draw you back where you need to be. You think I'm trying to expose you because I preach to others that may have the same sin as you committed. Now you think that I don't love you or I wouldn't be so hard on you. I want to tell you what the problem is. Preaching has become an unexpected enemy in your world. You cherished it when I was pulling you out of the world. But it's intruding now that I'm keeping you out of the world. You revered it when I was picking you up above sinful messes. But now you resent it when I try to keep you above the sinful mess you're trying to create. You valued it when I was trying to show you the way to escape your past. But now you're offended by it when I'm trying to help you escape your future. There was a day when they would have crawled. I think it's amazing. The Bible says in the last days there's going to be a famine. Not of the preaching of the Word. Read it close. Everybody says on the last days there's going to be a famine of the Word, Sister Alicia. The Bible never said there's going to be a famine of the preaching of the Word. I believe, Bishop Johnson, there's always going to be preachers that will preach it. Maybe not enough, but there's always going to be preachers that preach it. The Bible said the famine's going to be of the hearing of the Word. And I've preached in this house tonight, and some of you have learned when I hit that certain tune to turn it off. You want to know what that's a good sign of? That's a good sign you're the victim of an unexpected enemy. You didn't expect preaching to affect you like this, did you? You didn't expect preaching to shake you to your core and make you get angry, did you? The problem is you're the victim of an unexpected enemy. Lift your hands up and love the Lord right now. I need somebody to get in the Spirit right now and pray. God, help us. If we've heard so much preaching that it doesn't move us anymore. God, help us if we've heard so much preaching that it doesn't cause us to concern, to think that God found us too far away. God, help us! If we've heard so much preaching that we hear a man's words instead of listening to God's anointing. 
God help us that we've heard so much preaching that we see a preacher's motives instead of recognizing God's hand reaching for us. I think the hand of God's reaching for somebody here right now. Shall we pray again? Seek Him one more time. Oh, that somebody would get in the Holy Ghost and pray. Don't tell me this atmosphere has become an enemy. Don't tell me this atmosphere makes you recoil. Don't tell me this atmosphere makes you withdraw. Don't you let good church become an enemy. I close tonight with one last element that can become an unexpected enemy. If you listen to this preacher, we've already got some moving to an altar. Repentance can become an unexpected enemy to your life. What that don't make sense. Oh, yes, it does. It's so easy. Repentance. When repentance becomes an unexpected, repentance becomes an unexpected enemy. When it becomes an inoculant for your conscience instead of a cure for your sins. I was so terribly shaken recently. Please listen to this preacher. I'm almost done tonight. Elaine, I was so terribly concerned recently when I had somebody come to me. In the midst of dealing with them, we uncovered a horrible, horrible, hideous sin. A sin that I would have been fearful God would have struck me dead. I uncovered the sin. And the individual in whom I uncovered the sin, when, when the hearts were broken and people were, were shocked that this individual would ever do something like that, they casually looked at me in front of those that saw them sin and said these words, I don't know what the big deal is. I repented. I, I don't know what everybody's so worked up about. I told God I was sorry. I want to know if you're really listening to me tonight because this is the kind of preaching that will make us saints or at least make us look for ourselves. That person looked at me and said, I don't know what the big deal is. I repented already. It didn't bother me that they said they'd repented, Bishop Johnson. But what bothered me is they said it like it didn't cost anything. It didn't bother me that they said, I told God I was sorry. The thing that bothered me is they said it so carefree like like, like they counted a rosary without any meaning. It didn't bother me that they said I turned to God. What bothered me is they said it so nonchalantly as though everything was alright. If they could commit their sin and heartlessly say the words I'm sorry without any real remorse. I'm closing this message tonight by telling you that I'm in this church as a pastor. And as a pastor, I know your souls more than any man alive. And I am concerned that some of you can so casually sin and think you're marching back into God's good graces because you know how to say, I'm sorry, God. I've come tonight to challenge the death of some of the repentance that's been going on in the church. I would to God you are hearing what I'm saying. 
Let it be established now and forevermore that God grants the privilege of repentance to every man. That's why the Bible said in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter number 7, verse number 10, For godly sorrow worketh repentance unto salvation. God intended there to be a godly sorrow that drives us to repent and makes us feel the weight of our sins. It was God's design that our souls be so moved at the thought of the sin separating us from God that it moves us with tears and heaviness to get our souls back right with God. But what is it when you can say, I'm sorry, and there's no connection to the heart? It's called repentance. When you can weep and cry and say, Oh God, forgive me. I'll never do it again. But what's it called? When you can do what you want to do and say what you want to say and just say, I'm sorry, God. Let me feel a tingle again. You need more than a tingle tonight. Some of you need a restoration. And that's never going to come until you really repent from the bottom of your heart for your sin. Repent for the things you've been hiding. Repent for the things you won't let go of. Repent for where you are. Repent for what you've become. I'm begging this church tonight as your pastor of 15 years. We need to repent. We need to repent. I said, Jim Baker, I said two days ago at this altar with your mother-in-law, so weak and so frail that I went and put her in my office chair and I pushed Maxine back to this altar. And I sat down right here where I'm standing today and I began to talk to that woman in the final stages of her life. And we began to talk and she said, Brother White, I don't understand. What am I feeling? I said, Maxine, you're feeling God. She said, no, this can't be God. I said, why not? She said, because I feel so ashamed. She said, I'm sorry, tears. Running off there, she apologized to us coming in the door. I'm sorry, I can't quit crying. I'm, I'm so sorry. I, 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 I want to quit crying, but I can't quit crying. What is this? And I told her, Maxine, it's God. God's dealing with this is what we call repentance. That's your heart saying, I don't want to be where I'm at and I'm sorry for where I've been and I want to get right. And she said, I don't know if this can be God because I feel so filthy. And the thing that scares me to death is I've got a lady in the final stages of her life that's weeping uncontrollably because she don't know anything about God. But she hates being where she is. And I've got saints that sit in this church that can casually sin and come in here and act like nothing's wrong and act like there's no problem and act like all you got to do is say I'm sorry and that erases it and only erases it when that sorry is driven by a godly sorrow. In the shadow of that, how can you justify people sitting here just like now that should feel just as filthy for your sin but instead... You see your sin as a minor infraction. It can be taken away with the words, I'm sorry. You can say it with your lips and never feel it with your heart and that makes it... I'm telling you today, I'm not concerned that you're not saying you're sorry. I'm concerned. And I'm all shocked. I want you to pray that the anointing would settle down on this church right now. God's going to do a spiritual work in this house tonight.
I don't need any moving around. I don't want any running around. Get your mind and your hearts in tune with God right now. I don't want these kids running in and out. I don't want them carrying babies in and out. I want you to listen to God right now. God's trying to do something in some hearts. God's trying to do something in some souls. I want you to stand to your feet right now and wait on the Lord. Please. Please. Please wait on God. I'm not concerned that you're not saying you're sorry. I'm concerned that your sorrow isn't deep enough to keep you from going back to that sin. I'm concerned that your lips are saying something that your heart really doesn't mean. I'm concerned that some of you are going through the motions without the emotions it requires. I'm concerned some of you are saying words to appease your conscience instead of erasing the sin that stains your heart. I preached hard tonight and I intended to preach hard because I had to get your heart to this place right now. For generations, inoculation has been accomplished by injecting a small portion of a prescribed sickness that would help them build up a resistance against the sickness itself. Could it be that we've got saints that repent just enough over their sin that they become immune to the guilt they should feel? Could it be that we have people that repent just enough over their iniquity that they don't feel the shame? That they should, If you're here today and you've got sin in your life, there ought to be a shame that makes the tears course down your cheeks. Please listen to me. Please listen to me and I close. One of the most absurd things, Bishop Johnson, I ever encountered in my ministry is I encountered a young man that found him a girlfriend from another church. And in my dealing with them, we, we uncovered that there was some fornication that had gone on. It wasn't a once or twice thing, Brother Darren. It was a repetitive thing that had happened several times. When we finally uncovered it, I don't know if the boy was just trying to get out of trouble. I don't know if he thought that it erased all the consequences. But the boy looked at me as honest as he knew how to be. The girl sitting there by his side agreeing with everything he said. He said, Brother White, I know it was wrong. But it's nothing to concern yourself about. Because every time we'd get out and we'd kneel down beside the bed and tell God we were sorry for what we did. So Brother White, while we sinned, it's not a lot to be worried about because we would always get down beside the bed and we'd repent every time, Brother White, we sinned. Every time we'd get down by the bed, Sister Connie, and we'd tell God we were sorry. You think about that and you say, Brother White, that's absurd. 
No more absurd than some of you that keep repenting without tears. It's no more absurd than those that can dangerously sin with a prepared I'm sorry to cover it up again. It's no more absurd than some of you that are sitting here now saying I'm sorry that already have plans to sin again tomorrow. Safe sex. It's the mentality that says you can do what you want to do, but use this little cure-all to fix all your problems. Enjoy your iniquity, but erase the consequences with this little magic remedy. I want to preach to you tonight it's the same mentality that some people have that they bring to an altar in this ungodly generation. It's not just sin anymore. I'm committing safe sin. I'm going to enjoy my iniquity without any real consequences because I've already learned how to say I'm sorry. I'm going to have iniquity in my life. And it ain't going to matter because I've learned how to say abracadabra, I'm sorry. And it's all gone. I'm done. I'm done. I've just come tonight to preach to you about the victims of unexpected enemies. I want to close tonight with this. I am not concerned that some of you said I'm sorry last week. I'm concerned that it was easy for you to say I'm sorry last week. And now you need to say I'm sorry again this week. The reason I'm preaching the way I'm preaching tonight, I'm not concerned that you repented last week or last Wednesday when Bishop taught or or this morning when Bishop I'm I'm just concerned that your repentance wasn't deep enough that you don't have to come back again tonight and say I'm sorry I remember when real repentance meant you turned you changed you didn't live like that anymore I've preached long and I've preached hard but I've preached intentional tonight don't you ever be the victim of an unexpected enemy. Somebody in here needs to repent tonight. Somebody in here needs to say I'm sorry with a depth that keeps you out of sin when you get off this altar. Some of you need to repent over things you acted like you repented over ten years ago, two years ago, one year ago. Two people on the altar. If I become your enemy because I preach to you the truth, I'm trying to move you. Please, I'm asking you, when you come to this altar, don't come with a pretty little prepared, I'm sorry. When you come to this altar, don't come with a safe sin mentality. <laughs> You come to the altar tonight. Come with a thing that says, God, I'm sorry enough to quit. I'm sorry enough. Hey, look at here. We've almost got 100% of the people praying tonight. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. 
I don't need to be involved in sin. I need to put it under the blood. Victims of an unexpected enemy. The victims of an unexpected enemy. I never intended for truth to become an enemy. I never intended for good church to become an enemy. Some of you need to repent tonight because you never intended holiness to become an enemy of yours. Pray. I never intended for preaching to become my enemy.